following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church in Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. Welcome, everyone. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Canyon Ridge. If I haven't met you yet, I look forward to getting to know you, but I think I know most everybody in here that I see. But um, we are continuing a series that I started a couple weeks ago, but before we do that, I just want to dismiss Canyon Ridge Youth with John to the Paradise Room. But we are continuing to continue (laughs) the series um, called I am, who are you? And the basic idea is that we were created in the image of God. So we don't know who we are by looking at ourselves. We know who we are by looking at God. And who is God? Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so we know who we are ultimately by looking at Jesus. The Bible says that we are called to be conformed to the image of Christ. And as we, we try to figure out, okay, what does that look like? Jesus actually tells us who he is through the seven I am statements in the gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And today we're going to be looking at I am the gate. And so I want you to announce my title to your neighbor. Tell, say, neighbor, I am a gatekeeper. I need you to trust me in faith. In that, it will make more sense as the talk goes along. But we are looking at I am the gate. And in John 10, Jesus says, Jesus used this figure of speech. But the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved or will be kept safe in other translations. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief, here's the one we all know, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I may come, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Let's pray. God, thank you for this talk today. I pray that you might illuminate our hearts and minds, God, that we might understand and apply our words for your words for our lives, God, that we might not just have this for a Sunday, but we might take this word, put it in a doggy bag, and take it in for the rest of the week, for Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, that it might not just be a word to understand, but a word to apply and change and transform our lives. In your name we pray, amen. So in this passage, the context is that what has just happened is Jesus has healed a man that was born blind. He healed a man that was born blind. And people recognize this man because he used to beg around the city. And so they see this man has his sight now, and they know he was born blind. And so 
the Pharisees call him in and, and ask him, how were you healed? And this man tells them, and then they ask him again, and, and he says, you know, I've already told you about this. Do you want to become his disciples too? Now, the Pharisees are interrogating this man not because they are celebrating the fact that this man was healed. They are interrogating this man because Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. And that confronts their religiosity. It confronts their apathy towards the people because they wouldn't do things. They wouldn't help people on the Sabbath. And it showed the state of their hearts that they were people who were more concerned with controlling rather than caring for the people. And so they go on. So they, they, they confront this man. They, they hurl insults at him. No, we're not called to be Jesus' disciples. We're Moses' disciples. And as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And then this man says something I think is, is awesome. He's standing up to the Pharisees at the time, kind of the religious leaders at the time. And he, he says to them, um, well, that's surprising. We know that God doesn't listen to people that, are, that don't do his will. And there's never been a man that has been born blind that has ever been healed. And so if, if, if God listens to the godly, then, then this man must come from God. And so they, the Pharisees get angry at the guy because they said, what are you lecturing us? You were born in sin and steeped in sin all your life. Get out of here. And so they throw him out. And this man is confronting the Pharisees. And they, now the Pharisees, they had political power, not just religious power. It'd be like if I had some guards up here, and if you were wearing a hat and I didn't like it, I could point to you and say, guards, get them. And <laughs> it's okay to wear a hat in the church. Um, it's not what I'm saying. Um, but like if there was something, <laughs> something that you did that I didn't like, like I could point to that you, and the guards would go and take you and bring you and throw you out, out of the church, right? Um, that's what it was like back in those days. It wasn't just that they were religious people. They actually had political power. They had a temple guard. And so they could follow up their laws, the religious decrees, with actual things that they could do. They could actually punish people. And so they were, they were bent on controlling the people. Ultimately, they wanted to control the people because it provided them comfort. It gave them status. They loved, the Bible says that they loved to pray long prayers, eloquent prayers to be seen. They loved to have their tassels and robes be seen. They liked to take the, the places of respect and honor at the table and, and in their communities because they, wanted, they were people of status and power. That's what they cared about. They cared more about that than really about caring for the people. And so Jesus comes into this situation and he says, he talks, for, first off, he talks about spiritual blindness, which I get. You know, blindness is often a metaphor in the Bible for ignorance and for just turning away from God, which Jesus applies to the Pharisees. I get that. But then Jesus starts talking about sheeps and pens and all of these, and gates and all these different things. And we're like, Jesus, where did that come from? Like, this man was born blind, was just healed. He had this confrontation with the Pharisees because ultimately you were confronting them by healing on the Sabbath. You weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath, but it exposed the, the Pharisees' lack of care for the people. I get all that, spiritual blindness, but now you start off with saying, I am the gate. Like, what does that mean, Jesus, that you're the gate? 
So understanding gate a little bit in the context, um, gates were, were part of the sheep pens. God says that, that we are, are sheep in the story. Now, um, when you think of sheep, sheep aren't, aren't tough. Um, if you think of, a, of a, like a, a truck broke down outside your house and somebody came in and told you that it was full of wild animals, and you're, you said, oh, well, the wild animals, everybody lock the door, you know, batten down the hatches, whatever you do. And then you find out it's sheep. You're like, oh, that's cute. Let's go, let's go check them out. Or you uh, hear that, uh, you know, that, so like your parents tell you at, at night if you want to, or your spouse or whoever tells you at night, hey, if you can't sleep, what do you do? You count sheep because they're soothing. Also, sheep aren't smart. Um, there was uh, an incident in Istanbul, Turkey in 2005 when like I think 1,500 sheep followed each other off a cliff. One, one sheep fell off a cliff. The all, 1,499 sheep followed the sheep off the cliff too because that's what sheep were doing. But the funny thing was they said that only the first 450 died because the rest of them after that, the 950 didn't die because they fell on the sheep. And so it was like landing on a soft pillow. And so the, the sheep, so sheep are not tough. They're not smart. And you might say, well, I'm kind of offended because I'm pretty tough. Yes, you're tough. You're tough for a sheep. And you say, I'm pretty smart. And yes, you're smart. You're smart for a sheep. Uh, that all of us, we are, we are sheep. That's who we are. That's who Jesus likens us. So, so sheep needed to be protected because they weren't smart and they weren't tough. And there would be wolves that would try to break in to eat the sheep. There would be thieves to try to break in because they wanted to steal sheep because sheep were livelihood. You could shear them for their wool. You could kill, butcher them for their meat. Sheep were livelihood back in those days. And so shepherds really wanted to protect their sheep kind of as their investment. It'd be like somebody trying to steal your laptop. That is something you do your work on. It's something that maybe helps bring you money. And so you want to protect your investment. In those days, it was not sheep or not laptop. It was, a, it was sheep. And so the shepherds would build these, these sheep pens. Now, we might imagine things a lot of times these days there would. Well, back in those days, more often than not, they were actually stone, and they didn't have barbed wire back in those days, so they took briars and put briars on top of the walls to be kind of sharp things so people couldn't climb up the stone to try to get in to the sheep pen. So they were trying to build impenetrable walls. So the only way in was the gate. And the shepherds, during the day, they would take the sheep out to pasture so the sheep could graze on the grass out there. And then at night, they would put the sheep in to the sheep pen and through the gate, and that would, that's where they would be for safety. So the gate was what kept out the bad and brought in the good. And so it stopped the wolves and the thieves from harming the sheep uh, at night, and then it brought them out into the good things during the day. It allowed the, the sheep to be able to be protected. And, and, and so that's kind of what the, what the gates were then. It kept the, the danger out and kept the safety in, and the gates meant life. 
To understand this a little better, I wanted to actually go to a second story to understand a little more about the gate. What did Jesus mean by saying, I am the gate? And so I wanted to look back at it. I was looking kind of through the Bible for a Hebrew time, an Old Testament version of gates. And I came upon this story in 2 Samuel 19. In 2 Samuel 19, it says, Joab was told, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning. Because on that day, the troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Let me give you a little context here. What happened was um, David had a son named Absalom. He was the prince. David was the king in Israel during that time. And Absalom had a rebellious heart and actually ended up stirring up rebellion against King David, his own son. You thought your family had problems. We're actually going to show you his family actually had more problems than that. David, the one who wrote a lot of the Psalms in the Bible, um, was also a, a man that was flawed. Go figure. God uses flawed people. And if you were flawed today, just know God can use you too. So, so Absalom was also a handsome man. Absalom had long flowing hair. So he stirred up this rebellion and he marshaled an army and he brought it against the people. And Absalom, he was riding along. It was a high-speed horse chase. And, and David's general was riding after Absalom. And Absalom's hair got stuck in a tree because one of the things is that what outwardly makes you look good can also inwardly make you vulnerable. And that's what, that's what Absalom found out. He was hanging from his long flowing hair that made him look good to other people. He was hanging from a tree. And so Joab, the, David's general, came and, and struck him with a sword and killed him. And that's where we pick up this story, where, where David is weeping and crying and mourning for his son Absalom, even though the people that stuck with David, his mighty men of valor, they were the ones who stood up for him, even when his own son was trying to crush him. And yet, all David can think about is the fact that he lost his son, even though he won the war. And in the midst of this, we begin to see that David was dealing with his dilemma in, in a lot of with his son in a lot of different ways. And these are ways we're going to get back to the gate, but these are some of the ways... That that we have problems that we don't when we don't deal with the with the we don't deal with our problems at the gate. We first we deal with the dilemma from a distance. We deal with the dilemma from a distance. See, David in this story was Absalom. The way Absalom kind of won the hearts of the people, the way he stirred up the rebellion is four years before he even did that. He would go to the gate. And the gate was the place of buying and selling. The gate was the place of negotiations. The gate was the place where, where kings and, and, and magistrates would make their judgment happen. There was an outer gate kind of to get in, and then there was an inner gate kind of as a last defense of the city. And, and so the things would happen between the gates. And Absalom went between the gates 
And when people went there for, for judgments from the king, David was nowhere to be found. David was high in his tower, minding his own king business and, and being about his things while he was trying to rule the people from a distance. That created a vacuum in which Absalom, a good-looking young prince, would come in, and when people would go to between the gates for the judgment, he would, he would be there, and he said, well, that sounds like a really difficult case. I really care about your case, and if I were king, I would give you justice for, for that. The people would try to bow down to Absalom, but he wouldn't let them bow down to him, and he would kiss them. And he would make them feel like they are the world. Well, for four years, he did that. And after four years of that, he won the hearts of the people between the gates. See, David tried to rule from a distance. He didn't deal with his problem. He was trying to deal with his dilemma from a distance. And because of that, he kept putting things off, putting things off. For four years, finally, his problem caught up with him. And Absalom stirring up a rebellion and going against his own father. He was dealing with his problems, dealing with his dilemma from a distance. And oftentimes, if we're not careful, we'll try to deal with our dilemma, dilemmas from a distance and kind of put them off, put them off, put them off. And ultimately, they will catch up for, with us. So you, you keep putting off dealing with your bad spending habits. Or you keep putting off dealing with that bully at work, or you keep putting off that friend who's always trying to peer pressure you into doing the wrong things, or you keep putting off your lack of education or your bad job, and so you're constantly dealing with these things, and, and, and you're never, you keep putting off actually trying to make a difference in your life because you're trying to deal with your dilemma from a distance. And the thing about David and Absalom is that Absalom was close to David. And it's often the problems that are closest to us that are the ones that are most difficult to deal with. Those are the ones we often try to put and, and deal with, at a, put off and deal with at a distance the most. Like we, we constantly have these negative thoughts in our mind, like we can't do it, we're not going to make it anything, we're not going to be anything, or, or, or we have thoughts of anger in our mind from a lack of forgiveness in our heart, or we have lusts in our life that we're dealing with, and we're constantly putting off dealing with them, and we're trying to deal with our dilemmas from a distance. You know, the average time that it takes for a couple from when the problem starts to actually getting into counseling and dealing with the problem is seven years, because so many married couples are trying to deal with their dilemmas from a distance. And David was trying to deal with his dilemma from a distance. But, but I, I want to say that it didn't even really start, the problem didn't even really start with Absalom trying to offer justice between the gates to the people it, when David was, was, was kind of not in a distance, not really dealing with, with the problem. You know, the, the, uh, the, Bette Midler had a song, God is watching us from a distance, back in like, I think it was like the 90s or something, so... For some of you, that's like, you're right on. For some of you, you're like, what? what? Who's Bette Midler? Um, and, uh, but, you know, it, she was, God is, I always thought that was kind of creepy. God is watching us from a distance, like God is some kind of voyeur God. But God is not watching you from a distance. God comes down 
in your history if you will let him, and he will interrupt the difficult things that you're going through to point you to the important things because God is not watching you from a distance. God is very close. He's close to the brokenhearted. He's close to the people who are going through troubles. He is a a help in times of troubles. And so God is there if we will see him. So we need people in our lives that are going to come talk to us so we don't keep putting off our problems, trying to deal with our dilemmas from a distance. No, but, but like I said, I don't think that the problem started really with Absalom being trying to offer people justice between the gates. Really, the problem started even before because David wasn't just trying to deal with his dilemmas from a distance, but he was trying to deal with his dilemmas as disengaged. He was a disengaged father. See, this is the point where I said that uh, you thought your family had problems. You see, David had wives, plural, and not only that, concubines. I don't know how he would do that and deal with that because probably enough of us know that there's enough drama in our lives with one spouse. How do we have like many on top of that concubines? I have no idea how he did it. I don't want to know how he did it. Um, But so because of that, he had um, children, and those children had half-siblings, half right? Like a step, half-sister, half-brother, that kind of thing. So there was a, a, a son called Amnon, and there was a, his half-sister called Tamar. And Amnon lusted after Tamar, right? Like this is where it gets really messed up. And so Amnon... This is crazy stuff in the Bible. Like, you don't need to go watch Jerry Springer. I've just dated myself. Um, you don't need to go watch whatever, Maury Povich, whoever is. Like, you need to just read the Bible. Like, there's enough drama in the Bible. Um, and so Amnon is lusting after his half-sister Tamar, and he feigns that he's ill, and he asks her to come check up on him. And um, when she does, and they're by themselves, he rapes her. He rapes his sister Tamar. Well, Tamar's full brother is Absalom. And Absalom is enraged, and he goes and he kills Amnon. But one of the things is he sees that David doesn't do anything about it. David is disengaged. He doesn't deal with the rape of his own daughter. How can he do that? How can a father be so disengaged that he doesn't even do that? And I want to Talk to some, some parents today. How, parents, how can we be disengaged? Because so often we are making media the babysitter for our kids. And I found out this last week that kids on average will spend 6.4 hours a week. No, not a week on media. 6.4 hours a day on media. That means, and some probably more, that means like 9 to 10 hours. And that 6.4 hours doesn't necessarily count all media. So if you think about it, what that means is kids are spending more time assimilating the values of Hollywood, assimilating the values of, of all of Netflix, of all the things that are there, rather than assimilating the values of school. They might spend more time on media They probably do spend more time on media than they spend with their parents. We have disengaged parents today. We have people that are disengaged. I go to community-wide meetings, and the people I see there are people who all, it's their job to be at at a community meeting. 
because we don't have regular people, your average everyday person who just loves their community and wants to volunteer engaged in their community. And because of that, we see all sorts of problems in our community. There were a group of pastors in Denver who went to the mayor of Denver and asked the mayor, hey, we really want to make a difference in our city. How can we make a difference in our city? Now, they thought the the mayor was going to say, you know, after-school tutoring, visit shut-ins, you know, go to the, go to the senior centers. What, the, what the, the mayor said, the mayor, I don't, know, I don't think she was necessarily a Christian, but she said, what if you took Jesus' command seriously to love your actual neighbor? He says, so many of the problems in our city would go away if neighbors actually loved their physical neighbor, if they found out, hey, their neighbor is not mowing their grass, why aren't they mowing their grass? Well, they're not mowing their grass because their husband is sick. Or, or maybe there's all these kids that are running around all the time, and why are they running around? Because they're, they're fostering children who are coming from, area, from places, families of, of drug addiction, and these kids are, are, have come from such bad backgrounds that they don't have any values and they don't haven't had any control and so they're trying to their best but these kids are still out of control and and rather than judging them from a distance and rather than disengaging why don't we start engaging in the problems of the world so the church can be the light of the world that jesus has called us to be church can we stand up in our community and begin to engage in areas and not be disengaged and not try to be back from a distance judging the world, but start getting engaged in the world to make a difference. See, we've got to not disengage from the world, disengage like David was. We've got to engage. But at the same time, David was not just trying to deal with his dilemmas from a distance or trying to deal with his dilemmas as as disengaged, but he was also trying to deal with his dilemma as defeated. We see in this story that David is crying and weeping and mourning in his tower when his army has just won. And so Joab goes in and he says to them, says to David, because all of the people, they're hanging their heads in shame because the leader is weeping and crying and mourning for the loss of his son after they just won this battle to get back into Jerusalem and back into their spots. And so Joab, the general of David, goes into his house and he says, Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than any of the calamities that have come on you from your youth until now. Amen, Joab. Thank God for the people who love us enough to tell us the truth, even when it hurts, right? Um, We need to have people in our lives like that because this last week, man... I can tell you, um, I, I, I saw some fits, and, and um, for one, like my son Marco, we asked him to clean the litter um, for, for our cats, and um, I go out there, and you know, I, I don't hear anything, and then I kind of hear the sniffling and crying, and, and I walk out to the garage, and I'm trying to do some work and stuff, and I walk out there, and I see Marco, 
and he's crying, and he's holding the thing, he's just like sobbing like this, and I'm like, Marco, what's going on? And he said, um, he said, it's too hard. I was like, I was like, what? What's too hard? He's like, it's too hard to do the litter, and I guess that they'd taken him a little time to do it, and the cat went to the bathroom and stuff, and the litter clumps up, right? Well, when there's a lot of urine in there, the litter really clumps up, and it gets stuck to the bottom of the, the pan or whatever. And so he couldn't get it off. And so he had, was done. And he just threw everything down, and he was just deciding it was time to cry. So he was going to just throw everything down and cry, and he was done. He was overwhelmed with the litter. Well, I, uh, I, you know, I, I showed him, like, no, Marco, like, look, this is how you take care of it. And, like, you just got to scrape it this way. And, I, like, I banged the pan a couple times. I scraped it. Like, a couple seconds, everything was gone. And I was like, yes. Like, dad moment, showed him, helped him. was like, no, really, like, don't cry. Just take a step. Do the right thing. Take a simple step and just make it happen. And, you know, so I felt, felt good after that. And then later that day, I came here to the church, and I was, uh, I was trying to print off the programs for, that you have in front of you. And the, the, the darn copier kept jamming. It wouldn't print duplex. It wouldn't print on both sides. And so I tried over and over again. I tried, like, like brushing it out. I tried all these different things. I got so frustrated, folks. I got so frustrated, church. Like, I started throwing things. And I, started, and I started saying some words that are not choice words pastors should say. And I was throwing an all-out fit here by myself. If there was somebody in the church at the time, I would have been so embarrassed that I was throwing this fit while the copier wasn't. And then I remembered Marco. <laughs> and I remembered what I had just told him earlier. And I remembered, too, a s- simple thought came to me. Oh, I can print it on one side, put it back in the copier, turn it over, and it'll print again. Simple fix, simple solution. I was overwhelmed and trying to throw my fit, but there was a simple thing. And Joab comes to David, and he tells David, there's just a simple thing you've got to do. What he tells him is this, get back in the gate. David You've left the gate. The gate is the place of decisions. Between the gates. Between the gates. These are our gates. Between the gates. It's our mind. It's our decisions. Between the gates. The gates are the place of decisions. And and David had left the, the place. He had abdicated the place of decision and created a vacuum so that Absalom could step in to that place. And what, da- what he told David to do was this. I'm, I'm going to use this as an illustration real quick. Take your chair and sit back down between the gates. Sit back down between the gates. David came and he sat back in the gates. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger, he said, I'll be back. And he came back to the place of decision came back to the place of responsibility. He came back to the place where he would own his story and say, I am in the gates. I've come back to the gates. And what God wants to say to us, come back to the place of your gates. Come back to the place 
of decision-making in your life. Come back to the place where you would own your story and stop letting all the negative things into the gates because the gates are meant there to be there to protect you. And Jesus says, I am the gate. He is the gate. He is the one that is meant to be the one to, to decide what can come into our life and what should stay out. Jesus is the gate. He is the criterion. He is the standard for our decisions. He is the gate. He is the one that is called to protect us. He's the one that's called to be the judge for what is right and what is wrong. And so as, as gatekeepers, usually a gatekeeper means that you are taking care of the gate. But in my instance, I want to say to be a gatekeeper is to keep to the gate, to stay stuck with the gate. I am going to stay with the gate because I know that that is the only gate that can really provide strength for my life. See, in Isaiah 28, it says, He will be a spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back at the gate. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer, they stagger when seeing visions, they stumble when rendering decisions. See, in this, this pro, I, don't, I didn't have that up there on you, but, um, but the priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled from wine. See, the leaders who should have, the leaders who should have set the standard for, and, and, and led the people by their ex- example have lowered the standard and left the people vulnerable. They're, they're not only drunk, I would say, on, on wine and beer, but they're drunk on their pride. And that's where we find the Pharisees, and, and, and that's where we found David. They're more concerned with themselves. They're more concerned with their status, with their position, with their power, with their control than they are with the people. They've left the gates as leaders. They've left the ones to be the decision makers for the people, and and they've allowed the people now to just kind of go their own way. See, we need to have people. This, that's by the way, this is nothing like the leaders of today who always stand up and always do what's right. Um, but they've left the gates, and they care more about control than caring for the people. They've become thieves and robbers who are trying to break in and manipulate and steal the resources and steal the, the relationships and manipulate the people for their own benefit rather than being servant leaders and serving the people. They are thieves, what Jesus calls thieves, and robbers. But David got back up and he went back to the gates. And so Isaiah says he will be a spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gates. You see, Isaiah gives us a strategy for the gates. He says that, um, he said, Isaiah gives us a strategy. He says, you can turn back the battle at the gate. So when that thought pops into your head, when that thought pops into your head, you, you can begin to turn back the battle at the gate. See, this is a year as we begin 2020, we've got to be more intentional about our thought life, about what we let in to our thought life, what we let into our mind. Letting our, we can't let ourselves keep thinking about lust. We can't let ourselves keep, keep thinking about anger, keep thinking about um, 
negative thoughts, keep thinking about, all, about worry, keep thinking about fear. You see, if you've let it in, then you've let it, let it win. If you've let it in, you've already let it in. When we let fear in, we've already let anxiety win. When we've let lust in, we've already let our heart go astray. When we've let anger in, we've already let the argument begin to begin. See, we've, we've got to be able to be careful and turn things back at the gates. You see, nobody wins the Olympics during the race. They win the Olympics in the dark when nobody sees, when they're training. And so we've got to have that time of integrity in our life because if we don't have keep to God's standards, we can't expect to have, have God as, as our source. Put it, put it this way for you. So the same God that is to be the source of our strength is to be the source of our standards. You see, too often we want God's strength, but we won't commit to God's standards. God has to ha- wants us to commit to his standards so he can be our strength because he won't enable us in a wrong direction. God wants, if, if, if we see, how can I expect God's strength if I do not embrace God's standards? I've got to be able to embrace God's standards to have him as the source of our strength. How can I ask God to give me strength for a standard that is not his? How can I ask God to give me joy, and I want his strength and joy, but if I have not applied his standard to my life, then I'm I'm asking God to violate the very nature of our relationship with him, that he is Lord, that he is master, not us. So we can't say, God, help me, give me strength to go in this direction, but it's the wrong direction for our lives. See, in order for us to have God as our source, to have God as our strength, we've got to commit to him as the standards. So I want to close my sermon with asking, where are you? In your life, are you trying to be the gate? Are you constantly trying to be the gate in your life? Are you trying to be the decision maker of what should come in and what should go out in your life? You know, maybe maybe you are way holier than me, and and you are great at deciding what should and shouldn't come in your life. But for me, I need Jesus as my God to tell me what I should and shouldn't do. I need Jesus as my God to tell me what is right and what is not right. I need Jesus as my God to tell me how even I should think. Because oftentimes, the Bible says we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have gone astray and not followed God. And so we're all trying to be our own gate. Or maybe you're trying to be that sheep that has gone astray. And you're having fun out exploring and experiencing the pleasures of the world. But I can tell you, if you continue putting off, dealing with your dilemmas, dealing with your problems, they will eventually catch up with you. You can't outrun them. They will always follow you, and they will always catch up with you. Can we say to, can we say to Jesus, yes, Jesus, you said I am the gate. Jesus, I'm going to make you the gate for my life. You're the standard. You're the one that makes the decisions. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. And so when that thought pops into my head, I'm going to turn back the battle at the gate because I'm going to know your word. I'm going to know what you're calling me to do. I'm going to know what, who you are, that, you, that it's only within you that I really find protection, that I really find safety. And so I am going to be a gatekeeper. I'm going to keep with the gate because you are my God 
and you know what's best for me. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for this message. Thank you that we can be gatekeepers because you are the gate, Jesus. Help us to keep with the gate. Help us to stick with you, God. Help us to be intentional about our thought life so that this year will go better. Because when we, we reap a thought, when we sow a thought, we reap a, a, an action. And as we, we sow an action, we, we reap a habit. As we sow a habit, we, we reap a personality. As we sow a personality, we, we reap a life. It starts with our thoughts. Help us to think the right thoughts. Help us to continue to grow into the mind of Christ that we might begin to live a life of what you've called us to live, to be who you've created us to be, Jesus. In your precious name we pray.